Hi, everyone. Welcome to the third of three episodes on the startup process for home production and sales. This mini-series was a response to listener questions about how to get over the hump of launching a new home-based production business. In the first episode, I talked about paperwork and permissions. In the second episode, I talked about the logistics of preparing workspace and gathering the essential items to get started. Today, I will talk about branding, developing an e-commerce website, and the creation of my first products. The exciting news is that I am launching the new e-commerce site today, so this podcast is also the celebration of my official first day of business. I will share the web address so that you can check it out and see how I have tried to communicate about what the business is about and what we're selling. As you scour the internet and YouTube, you will find many gurus who describe their accomplishments in becoming zillionaires in selling their products online. They will explain their formulas for success and how you too can become rich, famous, and free of all material burdens in life. As you figured out by now, I'm not that guy. I'm just a person like you who is trying to gather the best information possible, bring some great new products into the world, and make them available to people who I believe will enjoy them. So this is not a guaranteed program of success. Instead, once again, I'm sharing my journey and the decisions that I have made along the way so that you can get one perspective from someone who is right in the middle of it. I also cannot guarantee that I've made the best decisions along the way. It's too early in my own process to know whether what I've created has met expectations. What I can say with confidence, though, is that I am very happy that this day has arrived. I could have taken six more months to make everything perfect and increase the likelihood that my product launch would have achieved more and more success. But we all have to decide for ourselves when what we do is good enough to take this risky, awkward step and then continue to improve over time. I am there. I have planted the flag. I'm ready to roll. It's go time. Hi, everyone. This is Corey Hyman, host of the Make It and Sell It podcast. This is a show about entrepreneurs who develop new products and then produce, sell, and distribute these products themselves. This field is wide open and can be a fantastic opportunity for anyone who has the passion, skills, and persistence to succeed. Why do people do it? How do they do it? What can we learn from their experiences? Stay tuned to find out if this career path may be right for you. If you've listened to the first two episodes of this miniseries, you might think that home-based production is all about planning and paperwork. Apologies if that was the case. Although planning and paperwork are critical to the startup process, there's also a lot of creativity involved. There are decisions about what you want to produce, how you want to represent yourself, and how to share your new products with the world. I've had a lot of fun over the past eight months thinking about these issues. It's one of the major activities that has kept me going during this otherwise challenging time of coronavirus. I've had many product ideas that have been brewing for years, many of which I've already developed for my family and myself and that we use on a regular basis. The question was which ones were ready to share with the world and in a way that we could turn into a viable business. Of course, the concept of viability is a squirrely one. For me, it does not mean obscene profit margins for only working a few hours per week. It does mean that I have to recoup initial investments of time and materials, recover production costs, and create enough of a margin that it is a good use of time. One of the early decisions that I made was to create multiple products in multiple sectors. I know, I know. I realize that there are listeners out there who are shaking their heads already and thinking that this is a bad way to go. There is a good counter-argument that starting with one product or at least staying within one sector and trying to devote all one's energy to make the best possible is the smart, best way to start a business. 
In all honesty, I can't justify the decision other than to say that I have a lot that I want to share with the world, and life is short, so this is the decision I made. I am confident about the quality and appeal of the initial products as well as my ability to keep up with on-time production to keep products fresh. However, I also understand some of the challenges that come with this decision. One challenge is communication. How confusing is it to potential customers that one company produces food, personal care products, and novelty products at the same time? What experience does that company have to create excellent products in such diverse fields? And perhaps most importantly, who is my audience for these products? Will they be the same or different for each one? The last question is a big one. For anyone out there who has taken a marketing class, you know the first rule of marketing is to know your customer. What are the characteristics of the person who is likely to buy your product? Knowing about that person, who is often called an avatar, is the first step to tailoring market materials for that person. So, is the person who is going to like comfort food also going to like shaving soap? Is the person who likes shaving soap going to like a creativity game? And most importantly, will linking these products together under the same brand be a turnoff? It's certainly possible. If so, what are the alternatives? One is, again, just to focus on one product or one product line. Unfortunately, as I've said previously, this is a non-starter for me. My passion is to bring a variety of products into the world. So that's what I'm going to do. Another option is to create separate brands and separate marketing channels for different product lines. However, I've rejected that idea too. It's hard enough to create and maintain one brand in one e-commerce site, much less more than one. So, the final decision was to establish one all-encompassing brand in which the underlying thread is quality, homemade, creative products that blend local and international cultures. I will then have separate shops for each product line within that overall brand. Is this a mistake? Again, it's too early to tell. I will share updates in future episodes. Okay, so far so good. We've determined the underlying concept. What are we going to call it? You've heard from other podcast guests that this was not an easy decision. Part of the naming process is making sure that you can create a unique identity so your brand is not confused with any other. And now, in the age of e-commerce and social media, this extends far beyond your community, state, and country, and includes the world. I came up with some great names, only to find that many were already being used as social media handles. One by a bookstore in Paris, another by a restaurant in Perth, It took a long time to come up with a unique brand title. In the end, I decided on Triple S Shops as the brand name. At present, the website hosts three different shops, a snack shop, a shave shop, and a surprise shop. What does Triple S mean? Well, it originally came from the snack shop. All our snacks are savory, sweet, and spicy. So that became the first Triple S. The next was the shave shop. The goal is to make artisan shave soap that is slick to avoid razor burn, creates a smooth glide, and is styling in its appeal. Last, customers will find that products in our surprise shop are silly, smart, and sassy. Each shop has its own logo, but all are tied to the same overall theme. In addition, given that we are starting with three types of food products, we have named each product line. This was a lot of fun to do as we really wanted to emphasize our location in Pennsylvania Dutch country. We looked around at some of the cool artisan products in the area and noticed the symbols that are commonly found on carved, painted, and stitched crafts and barns. These hex symbols are a part of local folk art from the 19th century. And although not clear whether these hex symbols were originally intended as symbols of good luck and good tidings or merely decorative, we found a few of our favorites and converted them into our product designs. 
The first food line, called Spice Box, is named after intricately carved boxes in the area. Historically, these were used to store spices. Some are small and portable, others much larger and serve as almost decorative cabinets. These labels will be crimson in color. The second food line is for our snack treats. This line is called Tassie's Tin. Again, cookie tins are common in this area and are also wonderfully decorative. A tassie is a small dessert that can be in the form of a mini pie or mini tart. Tassies are not native to Pennsylvania, but they are prevalent in some of our local cookbooks. We love the image of a decorative dessert tin being filled with bite-sized treats. Our Tassie's tin line will be green. The third line is for our drink mixes. This line is Mold Mug. Mold, spelled M-U-L-L-E-D. A mold drink is usually warm and includes a common set of spices. Think spice wine or hot apple cider. Even though we will have a broad diversity of drink mixes, both hot and cold, as well as with traditional mold spices and others, we again like this image. Our mold mug line will be blue. The next issue we tackled was about our distribution channels. In the long run, we would like to distribute locally to stores, restaurants, farmers markets, and other events, as well as online. And in terms of online sales, the plan is to sell on major e-commerce platforms, but also to have our own website. Of course, everyone has to start somewhere, so we decided to start with our own website. And of course, being the control freak that I am, as are many other home producers, I decided that I would create the website myself. In my mind, this was a no-brainer. I've developed simple websites in the past. How hard could this be? I would just find a great how-to video on YouTube and figure it out for myself. Well, my brainstorming partner thought differently. Anna and I have been working together these past few months with weekly check-in calls to support and encourage each other. She's a terrific thinker and often great devil's advocate. She's helped me in many ways, including changes to my product recipes, branding, and overall direction. Her view is that web design is a specialized field and could be done much more easily by somebody who has more experience and skills. Anna's view was that hiring somebody to do the initial build-out would be a cost-effective choice and one that would yield a higher quality outcome than I could achieve myself. As is usually the case, she's probably right. However, in this situation, I dug in and I learned how to create an e-commerce site for myself. It was a big time investment, but now I feel comfortable in making tweaks and updates as necessary. The other issue that Anna has really pushed is to make the website personal and clear. She reminds me that people have choices and will only give any new site a quick look unless they see something that captures their attention. The site, therefore, has to be unique, clear, enticing, and offer a reasonable value proposition. She has offered some great recommendations for improvement, some of which I've been able to do immediately and others that will take some time. I go back to the starting view that perfection is an aspiration. It is an ideal. But... We all have to make decisions about when enough is enough, at least initially, and go forward. I am there, and as of today, the website is live and fully functional. You can find it at triplesshops.com, T-R-I-P-L-E-S-S-H-O-P-S.com. That is the first of the two big reveals in today's episode. Please take a look and let me know what you think. Having created all the content and pricing for the website puts me in a great place to start selling on other major platforms too. I will probably start with Etsy and then continue with eBay, Fair, and Amazon. Over the next few months, I will also start to engage with local grocery stores, specialty stores, and restaurants to discuss wholesale options. The last topic for today, and the second big reveal, 
is my decision about initial products for sale. As fun as the overall process has been, deciding on products to sell and actually getting them ready for sale has been the best part of all. I realize a problem for many people is identifying products that they want to make and sell. That's not my challenge, quite the opposite. I have too many products that I would love to share at the start. Unfortunately, this is not practical, nor would it yield the best products. So I've had to hone the list. How have I done this? I've undertaken a massive research and development process for each product and in the end have started with the products that have made it to the end of the gauntlet. These are the first products that I have refined to be the best possible and the most practical to package and ship. I keep a master spreadsheet of the products that I'm testing. Right now, I have nine food products, two versions of shave soaps, and three different novelty products in process. On any particular day, as I have time, I take one of the products and I tweak the ingredient list, make a batch, and then try it myself and share it with others to see which they like better. I then decide which of the two is the winner, whether it is as good as can be, and if not, what I might try differently next time. This also includes practical issues, including whether the ingredients are cost-effective, whether the production and packaging process is practical, and the freshness of the products over time. As a social scientist and researcher by training, I had thought that the research and development process for food and personal care products would be easy and comfortable. However, it hasn't felt that way. It feels very strange to create a soap or food recipe. I'm very much a rule follower and have never before baked based on basic principles of my own intuition instead of a formal recipe. I've also realized that social scientists don't really conduct experiments. Sometimes we create quasi-experiments, but it's just as often that we use observation or existing data to conduct analysis and draw conclusions. Sorry if you other social scientists out there feel differently, but that's been my experience. So experimenting with recipes is still new to me. As strange as it's been, though, it's definitely a lot of fun, and it is very satisfying when it results in a fantastic outcome. I will share just one of my experiments to give you a sense of what I mean. This is for a spice mix that I have used in various forms myself over the years, but has now become one of my favorite daily staples. The idea started early in coronavirus, a time when I was thinking about products that I had been missing. One craving was Yemeni coffee. Some years ago, I worked in Yemen on a variety of projects. I would travel there on a quarterly basis and fell in love with the country and its traditions. One specialty that I always brought home was coffee. Although many people think that mocha coffee has its origins in Italy, it actually comes from the port city of Mocha on the Red Sea. To my knowledge, Yemen no longer grows coffee, but it does continue its tradition of coffee roasting. The coffees I had were deep, rich, spicy, and flavorful. Could I roast Yemeni-style coffee here? After conducting just a bit of research, I realized the answer was no way. Coffee roasting is a complex process with big, loud roasting machines with venting that would never be approved for my townhouse. That was out. The next thought was whether I could recreate the flavors using spices, so I started to experiment with spice mixes that I had used for years in making homemade chai. This was a recipe that I had mastered when I lived in India and watched the tea makers or chai wallas on the streets of Delhi. I perfected my chai process at home and, truth be told, it was one of the recipes that sealed the deal with my wife Heather when we were dating. Making chai was never stressful. It was never quite the same each time, but it was pretty close and the range of tolerance for too much of one ingredient and too little of another was quite high. Over the years, I embellished a bit too and started to add cinnamon, clove, and nutmeg to the original ingredients of fresh ginger and cardamom. So, all I had to do was figure out the right mix, right? 
Well, it took 17 iterations of testing before I came up with the right blend. And looking back at my notes, I realized there was good reason for this. First, I had to test that I had the right ingredients. This meant adding a new ingredient or changing the relative amount of an ingredient with each test. I also had to think about packaging. I went as far as buying a set of empty tea bags, filling them with various amounts of spice mix, heat sealing the bags, and seeing whether the steeping was making sense. What I realized was that the bags would create an unbelievably complicated packaging process for home production, and it would be just as easy to ask people to add the spices directly to ground coffee in their drip filters. Along the way, one of the tests, version 8 to be precise, included a bit of cayenne pepper. It was wonderful and added some heat to the mix but it was no longer as much of a Yemeni flavor as it was a Northern African taste and smell. It reminded me of some of the family sections of Northern African cities that I had visited more recently. So we named the spice mix Kasbah Blend in honor of some of my favorite wanting streets in various Kasbahs where you can smell similar spice scents in the alleyways. What is also fun about this mix is that our family has started using it on many other foods as well. Not only do I add it to my drip coffee every day and special weekend chai, but I also use it to make pancakes, waffles, baked goods, smoothies, yogurt, hot oatmeal, cold cereal, puddings, ice cream, and other desserts. The last wrinkle in this research and development exercise came far along in the process. I had sent a few samples to friends, including Anna, and spoke to her about it during our weekly call. She was very nice, but thought that the mix had too much cardamom. I happen to be a big fan of cardamom, so I can never have enough of it. I then probed others and realized that the flavor was too strong for the American palate and needed to be remixed with relatively more cinnamon. This switch also helped a lot on the costing side, as cardamom is much more expensive than cinnamon, making the Casbah mix previously prohibitively expensive. The result of the new blend was more affordable, appealing, and a win-win for sure. The Casbah Blend Spice Mix migrated to our next product, too, which is an horchata drink mix. This is the first product in our mold mug line. Horchata is a sweet, cold rice-based drink that is perfect as a special indulgence. It is also a centuries-old mix, originally from Spain, that traveled to Mexico with Spanish explorers. This is one of Heather and my favorite drinks. Heather drank horchata as a child when her family lived in Mexico, and I've enjoyed horchata on trips to Mexico as well as in Mexican restaurants and Central American pupuserias close to home. Our Casbah blend adds a slight kick to create a tasty, unique flavor. We package the dry ingredients together and add instructions to blend with milk and a bit of vanilla to bring out the complete flavor. Our last initial product is a baked cinnamon walnut snack, the first in our Tassie's tin line. This product comes with a warning, though. It is not because walnuts are a tree nut, one of the eight most common food allergens. We are very clear about this fact in our labeling. No, the warning is that it may be hard to stop eating after starting. On more than one occasion, Heather and I have found ourselves finishing a bag without the intention to do so. The combination of the baked walnuts, brown sugar, and yes, many of the same spices as in our other two initial products makes for a wonderful appetizer, dessert, or periodic snack. We've also found that adding the baked walnuts to other recipes, such as banana bread, zucchini bread, muffins, and oatmeal, adds some extra deliciousness. The good news is that this snack is made with fresh ingredients and will be made to order. At the same time, though, a snack is a snack, and it is good to be measured in everything that we eat over time. As is required by the Federal Food and Drug Administration, all our food products have ingredient lists and warning labels. 
The spicy horchata mix and cinnamon walnut snack also come with nutrition facts, which we will add to all packages and we have reproduced on the website. There are various programs to calculate and produce nutrition facts, so these labels were quite easy to create. We're also adding a best use by date on all our packages. For some products, such as the Casbah blend and spicy horchata, we're using the earliest date on the ingredient that expires the earliest. The good news is that both of these products have long shelf lives. However, given that the cinnamon walnut snack is baked, we're conducting further tests to see how long the mix tastes fresh after being stored in our chosen packaging as the basis for this best use by date. This, of course, is far earlier than any individual ingredient in the package. However, we want to be honest with customers about how long a freshly made product will stay fresh. So those are the big reveals. It has been really fun to get these three initial products ready for sale. I really enjoyed experimenting with different recipes, figuring out the branding and packaging, and creating the e-commerce website. Now, having gone through the process with three products, I'm increasing my efficiency in testing, pricing, and preparing new products. So I expect to add new food products to the list expeditiously. In the meantime, I'm actively working on some other products, including two shave soaps. This has been a relatively new endeavor, but one that has also been a lot of fun. Shaving soap is a product that has been part of my imagination since I was little. I have wonderful memories of my grandparents coming to visit and spending time with my grandfather in the bathroom at the start of the new day. He would first put in his false teeth and then organize his shaving materials. He would load his shaving brush with shaving soap, lather up his shaving cup, and spread the soap across his face. I remember this vividly. I also had incredible experiences living in India and going to the barber once a week or so for a shave and a haircut, which at the time literally cost two bits or 25 cents. The barbers would again squeeze shaving cream into a mug, create the lather, shave with the straight razor, and then cure the open wounds with a salt lick, creating a new, smooth, refreshing shave. Over time, as an adult, I've gone in and out of shaving with artisan soaps and shaving brushes. The last instance of this was at the beginning of coronavirus, when I was figuring out ways to distract myself that I bought a new safety razor, the first one in years, as well as a few new shaving soaps. I realized how much I enjoy the experience of shaving in this way, including the texture and feel of the lather, the smells of the soaps, and the process of shaving with a double-sided blade. It was then that I decided to experiment with my own shave soap varieties. I'm finding these experiments, though, more challenging than the first few food products, at least in the beginning. First, I'm relatively new at soap making. Second, soap making is not only about the right ingredients, but also about timing timing of when to mix the ingredients, for how long, and at the right temperatures. Third, it has been a challenge to figure out the right combination of ingredients that yield the perfect amount of conditioning, creaminess, lather, and slickness. Last, it takes a few weeks for the soaps to set up before they can be properly tested. Similar to a previous guest on this podcast, Tony Morell's early experiences in brewing beer, in which he too had to wait a long time to try his new blends, this delay is a bit frustrating and stretches the testing process out. Nevertheless, I persist, and I'm still optimistic that I will be able to introduce at least a few new soaps in the coming months. Another project that has been in the work for a long time is a creativity game called Bright Idea. This is at least 10 years in the making. It is a simple concept that we have played on many nights, weekends, and vacation days with family and friends. It is great for people of all ages and is a chance to flex your creativity muscles and marketing skills. It generates a lot of laughs and silliness. 
The idea is that creativity is not about lightning bolts of inspiration. Instead, it is about reorganizing one's world and bringing together the things that we already know, but in new ways. The game is about bringing two disparate objects together, imagining a new invention from those objects, and pitching that invention to a judge. The game requires at least three players or teams so that two or more can compete each round and make their cases to a third person who serves as the judge. These roles rotate each round, so the game is also a bit about politicking and longer-term strategy. The person or team with the most points wins. I created a web-based version of the game at the very beginning of the coronavirus shutdown. The internet address is brightidea-game.com. The internet version is free and will grow over time, enhanced by a growing library of other people's bright ideas to share. Heather, Scott, and I have already posted a variety of video examples. In addition, I would love to turn this into a physical card game as one of the first surprise shop products in the next 6 to 12 months so that people can enjoy it for family and friend game nights once we can get back to social activities. Check out the online version when you have a chance, let us know what you think, and, if inspired, send us some video clips of your own bright ideas. I would love to publish them on the website. The last set of upcoming products, which we will soon post on our surprise shop, are stickers and buttons for the coronavirus vaccine that will let people know that you have been vaccinated. We have envisioned this to be similar to the I voted buttons and stickers that we all enjoy each election cycle. We hope these will become symbols of pride for the people who wear them, as well as important cultural symbols in the long run about the importance of everyone getting vaccinated as the shots become more widely available so we can all get back to some vision of normalcy. The cool thing about being a home-based producer is that you do have the flexibility to create new products quickly, whether they are fads such as slime or larger social needs such as masks or vaccination stickers and buttons. We are really excited to get going and are honored to have you be a part of our early supporters. Thanks for listening to this podcast and continuing to encourage us and other home-based producers to carry on. I hope these last few episodes have helped you and others see possible paths to starting your own businesses too. Well, that does it for the mini-series. Next week, we will resume our regular podcast format with interviews from other home-based producers and others in the field. This next episode is an exciting one with award-winning hot sauce producers who've been featured multiple times on the Celebrity Hot Ones show. Thanks for listening today. This has been the Make It and Sell It podcast with Corey Hyman. Please subscribe, let us know what you think, and stay tuned for future episodes.